0: Hey, hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to another episode of A Pow Wow with Pops coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Uh, I appreciate you all joining us today. Uh, Today I actually have a guest. Uh, It's been a while since I've had a guest. We've had a lot of things in the world occur uh, over the past few months that have kind of really put a change on how things are done and how people communicate and how people get together. And uh, and today I'm actually glad to be. Um, I have, the guest I have today is someone is uh, is someone who plays in a band with two other people who've been on the show before, and I've been trying to get him on the show. He's really busy as well, also a parent and all the other things that go along with being an artist and that livelihood. So and today I'm um, I'm I'm here with Bill Barbeau Thank you so much for joining me thanks Jason yes no glad problem. to be on yeah man thank you so much for taking the time like I said I know you have kids and that's it's uh I'm sure it's fun but I know it's full time so uh I appreciate your time it's
1: uh yeah especially these days it's it's extremely full time
0: yes yes for sure um what I usually would like to do in these situations is kind of like just kind of go back to the beginning of Bill Barbeau as the the musician like um were you like where'd you originally come from where where'd you grow up
1: so i grew up uh not far from where i'm standing right now in silver spring maryland just outside of DC. oh wow um, okay so i i i currently live one exit over from where i grew up
0: oh wow did you ever imagine that growing up
1: no you know i never really thought about um i never really thought about where i was going to land I, I didn't really have a whole lot of you know, I, it, I know that there are a lot of kids who grow up in rural places and are just like I can't wait to get to the city, and some people who grow up in one city are just like I can't wait to get to another city. Right. I just grew up thinking like, hey, DC, DC's all right. This this, this world is cool. Right. Um, and then especially once I started getting into the music scene around here, I was like, I don't really want to be anywhere else.
0: Right. No. Right. For sure. Uh, you, yeah. Well, getting into the music scene was that like a middle school thing, a high school thing? Would you like? Were you into punk skate? Or did you skateboard? What What was your uh? What was your pull into the the world of music, in general?
1: I was not I was not a skater. I wanted to be a skater, but I I was too afraid of bodily harm. <laughs> okay. I think to ever really throw myself into skateboarding. Um, so that I I, I largely escaped um, that scene because I didn't really hang out with a bunch of skater kids. So it wasn't like I was left out of right. that scene. But like I I really grew up. Um. In, in, in the 70s and early 80s, I was a, I was a rock music fan. Nice. Um, I just I, My mom and dad were not big music people, but for whatever reason, they always had the radio on in our home. Interesting. The radio was going almost 24 hours a day. It was like the first thing they would do in the morning was put on the radio. It's so like in any room in the house, there would be a radio playing. And it was just the pop, pop music of the time. Yeah. And so I just grew up with pop music being drilled into my head. Nice. Um and then as I as I got into middle school I started going for the heavier stuff. I got I got into Van Halen and A C D C and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and that kind of stuff. Um but I I, I almost I, you know, I can't remember the first time I really heard punk rock, but I, I loved listening to the radio. So like at, at night I would listen to the local rock station D C one oh one.
2: Yeah.
1: Um and you know, I was that was getting into the Rush, and I was a super Rush head when I was nice. in, in sixth and seventh grade. <laughs> um, but there was another local radio station called WHFS that was just a couple numbers down. DC One Hundred One was a One Hundred One, WHFS was at Ninety Nine. So sometimes, when I'd be tuning for uh, DC One Hundred One, I would go down to Ninety Nine, and and they'd be playing this different music that I'd never heard. And they they ranged. It was a, it was a free format radio station, so they would have in equal measures, stuff like, you know, 70s power pop. Like I'd listen to right. like Flame and Groovies or, or Todd Rundgren or something. Right. And then the very next song, they would, they would play something like "Mission of Burma. Right. Um, and so like up. I just, I started hearing this stuff kind of, I was like, what is this stuff? Like what is what is what is Husker Do all about? Because I was hearing this on the radio. Right. And I never really got into it, though, because it was – life life at that time in the early 80s was you had to know somebody really. Like yeah. it was a punk rock was a bit of a virus yeah. and if you were if you couldn't drive and you lived in the suburbs like I did and you didn't know how to get into town to go to a show you didn't really hang out with the kids who were going to the shows who would say like oh my god Marginal Man's amazing or Government Issue's awesome you just had to to figure out how to find that music on your own. Right. And eventually you find your way to a record store. When you find your way to a record store, that's like one of the ways that you unlock the world. Cause you go to a record store. I I remember going with my friend, David Holly in, in ninth grade, I guess we went up to um, a record store in Rockville, Maryland nearby here. And we're just like, let's buy some punk rock. And I am like, I don't even know what we're buying, but I'd heard of minor threat <laughs> and, and, no trend. No trend was another right. um, um, punk rock band from D.C. at the time, and you know, like money was very precious to me at the time. I was like, I've got six bucks in my pocket. What am I going to do with it? Minor Threat LP was, you know, five dollars or something, and and the No Trend record was five bucks. I was like, Hey, you buy No Trend and go home and record it, and I'll buy Minor Threat and go home and record, it and then we'll trade tapes. Nice. And so that's that was like one of my early entrees. Yeah. And then when you mention to somebody like, Hey, I heard this minor threat record and it totally blew my mind. They're like, Oh, you heard minor threat. Well, you should totally check out who's going to do.
2: Right. And
1: so then you get past the cassette of of Zen Arcade or whatever. And it just like, it starts to snowball as you begin to accumulate more and more of the music Mm -hmm. and you begin to connect more and more of the dots with friends who are connected to other friends who are in bands or know people in bands. And then you go to the shows, and then you're like, "Who's this opening for?" Uh, you know, I, I went to see. Um, um I went to see. Uh, oh gosh, come on, what it was? It's totally blowing my blowing my memory banks right now. <laughs> I can't remember. I well, I went I went to a show at the Nine Thirty Club. Okay. And it was the very first show I went to at the Nine Thirty Club, and the Cripple Pilgrims opened for. Uh, whoever was headlining? Why can't I remember who's headlining? This is driving me crazy. Um, oh, Gun Club! It was a Gun Club show, okay. so I went to see the Gun Club and Cripple Pilgrims open. And, and Cripple Pilgrims got up there, and I was like, "This is amazing! Where are these guys from?" And they're just like, "They're from down the street." Like this, and, I, and realizing that all of this music was being made by people you knew mm-hmm. was a life-changing moment. Because when you grow up in the '70s and '80s, the only thing you hear on the radio is stuff that has been anointed by the record-making gods
2: Right. as,
1: like, these people are supremely talented, and they're rock stars, and if you want to ever have your music heard, you need to be a rock star, and if you're not a rock star, sorry, you're out of luck. Right. But when you, when you start getting into punk rock in a scene like in D.C., yep. all of a sudden you realize, like, wait a minute, you can be in a band, and people will actually go see you and buy your record, and you don't have to be on Atlantic Records or or Atco or whatever, right. RKO. Like you didn't need to be on a major label. You didn't need to be in New York or Los Angeles. You could be right here and still have an audience for your music. And that was like a really powerful realization for me.
0: Then have control of it at the same time where nobody else can t- t- mess with your artistry and your artwork. So I mean that's one of the.
1: In theory, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like...
0: I think that I, I'm <laughs> and, always very, i right.
1: always very careful in making grand pronouncements about the virtue of of indie labels because I was, I I was very fortunate. My very first label that I was on was right. Discord. Yeah. Which, when it comes to integrity and it comes to giving oh, totally. artists freedom to, to make their noise, is unsurpassed. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: But there are a lot of. Sometimes well-intentioned but bad business people who get involved in independent labels, and then sometimes there's total shysters. So yeah, no, um, for sure. I've known a lot of friends, fans who've been in the underground have gotten just as screwed over or screwed over worse by independent labels as they would have if they'd been on a major. But um, yeah, but I digress.
0: I've had a few. Anyway,
1: the 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 idea is pure, right? The idea being the intent. If I'm an independent artist, right. I have control over my music. I have control over my expression. Right. I can do what I want and get my music out the way that I want it to be heard, and not not have polish put on it that isn't appropriate for the integrity of the work.
0: Okay. So what? So when's the first time you start when you play? When did you start playing music? Like, did you just pick up a guitar? and were interested in it? Was it something you went from piano to guitar? Or did you what other instruments? Well, how'd that happen?
1: uh piano to i guess piano to saxophone to guitar is really how it worked oh. um, so i started taking piano lessons in second grade and i hated it because i was playing classical music and
2: right.
1: as much as i have a uh, as much as i have an intellectual appreciation for classical it never really resonated with me right i was i was an elvis kid like my my very first concert i ever went to was elvis presley in 1974 when i was mm-hmm. six years old because <laughs> um, my uncle uh, my uncle was a super Elvis fan, and I spent a lot of time with him and my grandmother. She babysat for me, and so yeah. he would always be playing Elvis records. I just got really into Elvis, so I, I I wanted I wanted to play rock and roll, like Elvis style rock and roll, you know, exactly. like boogie woogie, you know, rockabilly type stuff. Um, but my piano teachers wanted me to play, you know, Beethoven minuets. <laughs> so, I struggled my way through the piano, and I I learned a lot about how music works because of piano, right. but I totally abandoned it as soon as I could, because I was like, you know, this is no fun, right. I want to play soccer, I want to learn how to ride a skateboard, which I never ended up doing, um, but then, you know, like, band time came around, you had to take band, and some great band, or, or shop, or something, I was right. like, no, i will do band, I like, I like music, I'll, I'll play band, and then he's a saxophone player, and my family happened to have a saxophone from when my mom was a kid, oh. so... I um I played saxophone in the band, but again I was playing band music. I wasn't playing rock and roll. Right. And then I met this um, a friend of a friend of my mom's had a son who was a few years older than me who um was playing rock and roll and, and they were in a quote unquote band. It's basically um, him playing guitar and another kid who was trying to play the drums, and they didn't have a bass player, they didn't have a singer, nothing, but right. they had instruments. And I was like, "Whoa, That'll electric work. instruments is <laughs> radical!" I cannot wait. I cannot wait to get my hands on this thing. So, I when I when my mom was hanging out with this friend of hers, I would hang out with those guys in the garage, and um, and he the this, the, the kid eventually sold me my very first guitar for like thirteen dollars or something when I was thirteen. Nice. It was a it was this beater you know so total, total department store guitar totally. um with rolling stones lips magic marker on the back right. like the whole nine yards so um <laughs> so that was my first that was my first electric guitar so i went up to chuck levin's here in dc infamous music store and um bought a pv decade for probably oh, like i don't know forty dollars i don't remember what a 10 watt pv decade which i still actually have so wow. i um still yeah. in my music room um and that was it I was like It's got It's got a game section Right I can play an electric guitar That sounds like so I doon play like place You need to know? talk You yeah. Um, and then there was This other kid That I went to Boy Scout camp with Who brought his Acoustic guitar with him To Boy Scout camp And he unlocked The magic of Bar chords
0: To me Oh wow Okay
1: So So up until that point I just had Basically I had I had An old Acoustic guitar That um had been in the family for a while, and I had a chord book. And for some reason, I never got to F major or B flat major like I, I don't. I never played any of the chord, right. chords that involved a bar because my hands were too small and it was too hard to, to express them that way. Right. So I was just playing you know, like E major and A major and D major and and G major, um, and, and learning forms of the chords. But I didn't really learn bar chords and the magic of being able to move a chord all the way up and down the neck. And right. this kid taught me that. And all of a sudden, I had an electric guitar. I had my pv decade and i had bar chords and so i was like i can write A C D C songs now right. so that was that was one at all the magic all started to come together was it was like nice. as soon as i could write A C D C songs and right. then i knew that that's what i wanted to do
0: so what was the 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 artistic travels of that teenager to where uh it came to the first time you met with the others in drawbox and that uh coming together like what was the transition
1: there were some really magically serendipitous things that happened in my life between that time so I played in you know cover band in in high school um, so you know like I, I, was, I was doing it very casually and right. we were we were a we were all interested in music but all in different kinds of music so we would be like covering the cars and covering the romantics nice. and then I would be trying to write a hardcore song and we were like all trying <laughs> to like graft Right. Grasped all these different musical <laughs> styles in one place, and um, you know, I, I, ma- I imagine we were terrible, but who right. knows? Like, the the kids seemed to like it when we played at a party. Yes. Um, but but I went to college and I started my first real originals band with uh, Danny Papkin, mm-hmm. who is who then who then went on to play guitar for Candy Machine. Oh, wow. Out of Baltimore. Okay. Um, so Danny and I were roommates, and. He brought his guitar, and I did not bring my guitar to college because I was like, I can't fit it in the car, so I guess I'm, I can't bring my amp, can't bring my guitar. I'm just gonna just see what happens. So right. we got up there, but but Danny was like, "Let's start a band." I was like, "Cool." Um, I don't have anything, but you know, if you're gonna play guitar, I guess I'll play bass. So I went and I bought this. I bought the, a, a a fretted bass that had had the frets ripped out. Oh wow! From this kid for you know 20 bucks because again i was in college i didn't have any money right. <laughs> and um it's really awesome it's really awesome a PD 400 bass head and a, a, a fender 215 cabin, oh, cabinet cabinet wow. so which is still my preferred bass rate to this day that sounds i don't know I, you know so you didn't
0: i would like the sound of so, and, uh, <laughs>
1: oh yeah, yeah yeah i mean it sounds amazing like the pv400 is such an underrated head it's like they're yeah. dirt cheap but they sound great yeah Totally an aside, on the very first night of the Jawbox tour that we did last summer, um, Kim's Hearts 3500 head blew up. It it didn't explode, it just stopped working. So, like, we were sound checking and everything was sounding great. And that was the ant that she always played in Jawbox, and that was totally key to her sound, or so we thought. Um, And it fried. And we were just like, oh my God, it's the first night of the tour, and we have no bass head. So we were casting around, like wondering where we were gonna find a base base amp. We ended up borrowing something from um, I think it was Second Letter from Philly opened Course that night, and I think we borrowed their base amp. Or like somehow miraculously, like four base amps showed up, right. and we picked one that sounded the closest to hers. <laughs> but over the course of the tour, we ended up. Um, just using my my PV four hundred, which you know I, I think it's a seventy five or something, yeah. and I bought it in nineteen eighty four oh, wow. or eighty five. Well, see. It was after I was in college, so it was like nineteen eighty six or nineteen eighty seven, I guess that I bought that amp. Um, and it, it has never once been serviced. Knock on wood, wow. I've never taken it into the shop. it's it's still, you know, the pots are a little crusty and it crackles every once in a while, but it still sounds raging. And Tim ended up playing many of the Jawbox shows that we, the drive-out Jawbox shows that we did this past summer using that same PB400. But anyway, so, so I bought that, I bought that rig and we started a band called Clambake with a a kid named Reed Moyo from DC on drums. Um, We were a (laughs) three-piece and we just played, we played a bunch of originals and we fashioned ourselves as I don't know. Like in the mid '80s, we there was there was um so college rock yeah was a thing that didn't exist before that. Like REM kind of blew open this whole concept of right, like like p- kind of pop, kind of edgy, not really mainstream radio friendly. Yeah, mainstream still, radio was still super mainstream at that point. Indie. Like if you weren't Lover Boy or Def Leppard, you weren't going right. to get played. So. Um, so we were like, well, we we love the replacements and we love REM, but we also love DC hardcore, and so we we ended up being this really bizarre, struggling hybrid of of like we were we were like a we were like a buffet, you know, a buffet of your record collection, right? Where one song one song would be kind of vaguely shoegazy British stuff, and one would be kind of Smithy, <laughs> right. and one would be kind of R.E.M.-ish, okay. and then one would be. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of a punk rock song. So kind of cover the bases. I'm I'm <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Somebody was interrupting my, my call here. No, uh, means- but yeah, so we were this total boy rock band, but Danny was good friends, best friends from high school with Adam Wade, who was Drawbox's first drummer. Okay. So when we were home on breaks from school, we would hang out with Adam. And so Adam and I became friends and, Eventually, we all graduated. Um, I tried to bring that band home. Um, and we, we basically fell apart after you know, just a few weeks. We got home. We were just like, yeah, this, this is going to work. We need to work. We need to have day jobs. And breaking into the DC scene is too tough. And our drummer at that time was from Minneapolis. Oh, wow. And he, he didn't realize how expensive it was to live in DC. And he was like, I can't hack it. I got to go home. So we lost our drummer. And then all of a sudden, I had, I had no band, I had no prospects, but at least I was friends with Adam. And Adam said, you know, Jawbox um, has been thinking about adding a guitarist. And he said, are you interested? And I was like, I'm, yeah, I'm totally interested. But, and the big but was, I've been playing bass for four years right. in college. I hadn't been playing guitar basically at all, except for to write. You know, I would write on guitar, but I would play perform on bass. Um, so I was like, yeah, but I don't even have a decent guitar. <laughs> So I, so I went out and I bought, like Adam and I went shopping and I went out and I bought, I, I got a Gibson left Hall, which was like, their kind of low, low, low end, left Hall.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, a flat top left Hall, um, like brown, it looked like furniture. It was like this brown, <laughs> left Hall shaped body, flat top guitar, great County guitar. But, um, you know, it was, it was the cheapest thing I could find. It was decent. And um, I bought my, my first Marshall head at Chuck Levin's for $315, which nice. you know, now is like a, now probably about a $3,000 head. Yes, but, it is. Um, <laughs> and, and, a, and a 412 cabinet. Like, I was like, here I go. I got a, four, I got a Marshall 412, I've got a Marshall head, and I've got this, this Gibson guitar. I'm going to go try out for this band. And I had seen Jawbox perform before. In fact, when I was in college, they played Northampton, Massachusetts. Okay. And I was I was in school up in Massachusetts, and we drove through this insane blizzard to go see them play as a three piece. Wow. They were sensibly opening for Bolle Volta, but of Volta, who's from Massachusetts, didn't even bother to go to the show because the weather was so bad. The John Box was already on tour, and we were we were college idiots, so we were just like, well, sure, we'll drive through three feet of snow to get to a show in Northampton. So we drove an hour and a half three three feet of literally three feet of snow <laughs> to get to Northampton, and. Um, I saw them perform, and that was the first time I met Ken and Jay. And um, apparently, I left a really bad impression. Ken thought I was a total, a total asshole because I probably was. I was was frankly really nervous to meet them, and I didn't want to come across as a fanboy. Right. Um, So I probably went the opposite direction and tried to be really cool. Um, (laughs) But so anyway, so I had met them before, and I think I I was thinking like, oh man, I probably left a really bad impression of Ken and Jay. Adam knew me. And he knew that I wasn't that way, but but I was like, I'm going to try anyway. So I went and we did I don't know a couple rehearsals around Christmas time of um, this would have been 19, Christmas 1990, and um, lo and behold, they decided to give me the gig. I could sing, so that was a bonus for Jay. So I could do backing vocals and harmonies and stuff. Right. Um, and I was you know I I managed to convince them I could play guitar, which was Kind of a miracle in and of itself, and um, and they didn't know that I was I could write as well at the time because I, I didn't you know show up and say hey I've got these songs I want to change the sound of your band, um, <laughs> but um, but they they let me have the gig and then we um, and so this was after they had recorded Grip the debut album yeah um, but had not yet really toured on it properly so the album didn't come out until early spring of 1991. And that was when we started our first full u s tour um, with me in band
0: uh, and that how long was that tour that very first tour how long did you all go on that record
1: for ah, I feel like it was long I feel like it was i don't know seven or eight weeks it was it was a full u s tour like we oh, wow we did it up like we so we played we played a kickoff show at d c space back when that existed here in d c um I think it was with super chunk, but I don't remember exactly Holy shit. um and then we got in the van after the show to drive to Athens, Georgia, for to, <laughs> to kick off the tour.
0: Who'd you blame So we for? drove
1: overnight. <laughs> we got to the 40 watt in Athens at, in the morning. And I remember like the photos because these were actual like printed photos at the time. And we had digital cameras back in, in that that day.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and I, I remember the photos of us sitting in the parking lot of the 40 watt because we were like we're in Athens, Georgia where are we going to go Right. at you know 7 o'clock in the morning or whatever but we knew we couldn't make load in at 4 o'clock if we decided to leave the next day I don't know why we did it but anyway that that somehow we ended up in Athens, Georgia in the morning at the 40 watt club sitting around waiting for the club doors to open Um, but we went all throughout the south Uh, we went all all the way out to the west coast Um, I can't remember if we played any Canada gigs that first tour I don't think we did right Um. But we, we did we did the loop, we did it all the way around.
0: How did you find as you guys first were playing at that time period and noticing that even mainstream music was changing a lot at the time, probably just as quickly as the underground scene was changing from like hardcore into like emo bands and, and rock more, more of a rock um, more rock band than less hardcore bands? It, like there was like this change that happened, and it seemed to happen in the DIY scene and the indie scene as much as it did, and like the pop culture scene, like all the how grunge became the big thing, but in the indie scene, it seemed like music had like, I mean, it was, you know, you you had bands like Superchunk and Jawbox and, and all these different bands from all you know all over the place, all over the country that weren't a part of this big machine that we called the pop culture music but they had it was like you had your own scene and it was across the country and it was one of those things that I found to be like um super powerful to me at the time and I I mean how was it for you did it hit you as hard like did you realize that you guys were making um, any sort of like impact on the listeners that that you were playing in front of even for like the first time
1: well, I think that... I think you're right. I think it, it was difficult to be on the inside at that point and really see it for the sea change that it was. Right. Like, the momentum definitely shifted around that time. Like, you remember, I don't know if you remember the movie 1991, Year Punk Broke.
2: yeah,
1: Which was <laughs> ostensibly about Sonic Youth. And, of course, Nirvana was opening for them on the tour. And, really, it was Nirvana that ended up breaking punk rock into the mainstream. Yeah,
2: um,
1: But that movie was about Sonic Youth, who had, I think, signed to Geffen at that point, And... Um... So that was that was right around the time that we were doing all this stuff. And at the same time, I think there was this movement away from hardcore in a lot of bands that had come up through hardcore. Some of them went in a heavier direction, like a more metal direction. Right. You know, like bands like Gangrene yep. um ended up sounding more like a metal band than they did sound like a hardcore yes, band.
2: Yes
1: did. Um, <laughs> and then some and then some tried to be more in a like we tried to slow it down and take it into more of a, I don't know. I want to say an art core or post hardcore direction. Right. And we were lumped in with that group. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: emo, such as it exists now or such as it's, as it's lobbed about now, didn't really exist at that point. Right. Like the first emo bands that I had heard of, or, or when, um, you know, bands like lights of spring got called emo or embrace right. got called emo core. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to which I think one of the best answers I've heard was I think Deep Urban said about "Rites of Spring" he was like, "What's wrong with being emotional? Like, why why would you listen to any music that isn't emotional?" Right. Which I think is a great point. Um, yeah. um, but but anyway, there was there was definitely a fragmentation and like the traditional hardcore scene. There was there was definitely a lag between what the audience's perceptions were of a band from DC
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the kind of music that we wanted to be making at that point. Right. So there were, in the very first tour, a lot of the flyers were Jawbox featuring Jay Robbins' ex government issue. Mm. And the reason the promoters did that was because they were just like, well, it's a new band, but government issue is a hardcore band that everybody's heard of. So they'll come out and see J.'s new band. Right. And there were a lot, I think there were a lot of disappointed fans when we showed up and were not playing.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know playing loud hard and fast and, right. and it, w- it wasn't that we were like intentionally trying to slow you know like oh, here's our artistic statement we're just going to slow down hardcore right um it was just that was just the way the songs happened to come out and i think that part of it was part of it was informed a little bit by fatigue of hardcore like right. so many hardcore bands had done hardcore so well it's just like look, we don't need to be another minor threat or bad brains. Like those bands already have mastered the art form. We don't need to do that. Let's just come up with something that feels authentic to us when we're writing. Part of it too, from my standpoint, was I was informed at the time by the music that I grew up with. I was, you know, I, I, I still liked, um, traditional hard rock. Like I like hard rock. I like, I like power pop. I like melodic stuff. Right. Um, and so, and so we were we were trying to sample from all these various influences and put it together into something that felt unique to us and felt authentic for us, but weren't necessarily too concerned about what label was going to be applied to us. Uh, and that I think always put us at a bit of put us in in, in a weird place, like us, sh- sh- shudder to think and Jawbox are I was often just gonna say lumped together yes. as being like the odd oddballs of, of the discord catalog yes although the discord catalog is very diverse yes i think it it was less it was less so in the early 90s than it is now it's very diverse yes, it is. um but you know we were not, not neither one of those two bands were playing what was traditional dc hardcore and it it i i hope that there were a lot of hardcore fans who would hear us and go oh there's more to heavy music, or there's more to music played with passion and emotion and vibrancy, than just play it as fast as possible and play it with as much distortion and shouting as possible.
0: Well, I could tell you the the hardcore kids down in Gainesville at that time period all like Jawbox. Like,
1: yeah, well, we had a we had a great reception in Gainesville. Gainesville, I think we I mean, played, I think we played Gainesville on that very first tour. Yeah. I don't recall correctly maybe the hardback or something. Yeah, you guys, played um, your, yeah and and like we got yeah we had we had a really great reception there and we were still playing with passion and with with volume and with crunchy uh, guitars um but we were not playing you know what what you would normally mosh to right and it was funny like there would, there would be so many places we would go where a pit somebody would try to start a pit or something while we were playing and we didn't we never got to the place where we was like Hey man, we're not going to play until you guys stop beating each other up. Right. Um, but it was more like, it was more like they would try to start a pit. And then most of the audience would be like, this is not that kind of music, dude, yeah, like chill your testosterone <laughs> for a minute. Um, right. And you know, the scene, the scene at that point had become very infected by a real macho element that yeah. was in many ways, part of what attracted to me about punk rock in the first place was getting away from that macho element. Yeah. Um, you know, like it was not originally I didn't think of punk rock as meathead music and eventually like the 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 meatheads showed up and I was gonna say football players, but that, I think that's me well, I think it's too dismissive of football players. There are a lot of football right. players who are that very nice be. guys and very into the for the music. Yeah. Um but you know, like it's, it's pretty pretty quote unquote fun for a big dude to go to a hardcore show and say like hey it's a chance for me to beat up on some skinny queers
0: yeah they're just um, a bunch of lugheads with like, impunity you know <laughs> Darwin Award like I'm,
1: I'm, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a relatively small guy so I was like I'm not, I'm not that interested in throwing myself seriously bodily into a <laughs> pit with a bunch of 180 of pound dudes who you know windmilling their arms around to hurt you yeah yeah i mean like it was there was an intention to mark and that became very marginalizing you know for women and small people (laughs) like like, there were not a lot of girls who were interested in going into the pit and eventually there were not a lot of girls who were interested in going to the shows yeah and that was that was something too i think that's worth noting about draw boxes we were one of the relatively few heavy bands that had a, a woman in the band yep um and that and and I think Kim opened a lot of ears and minds of girls and young women who were into heavy music but didn't want to go to the shows because it was like I don't want to get my I don't want to get punched you right. know um, and when they realized mm-hmm. like it was a safer place to go to see a job box show right. um, it definitely gave us gave us an edge on the diversity in our audience
0: I mean I um, guess,
1: not I mean, a huge one yeah, let's yeah like let's be real yeah we were still. 95 percent guys and five percent women but right. um, that changed over the years and um, and I think I noted this from the stage on our last tour I was really pleased with how diverse our audience had become oh, yes. um, over the years and there were a lot more women in in the audience than I was used to seeing back when we were touring full-time in the 90s
0: yeah no like I, I totally remember those shows during the 90s I remember seeing you all. The night before you played at the Hardback in Gainesville, I had seen you all in St. Augustine. It was the night before. I believe it was St. Augustine. And I forget what the name of the club was in St. Augustine. um, But we had seen you guys the night before. And then the next night you played in in Gainesville. And it was, like, awesome show. You guys hung out with us afterwards. You talked with us. Like, you and... um, and I think Chris Wallard were talking about guitars or something. And George Rubello was talking with the drummer. And it's just like, you know, everybody's doing it. It was a pretty awesome show. And, and it was like one of those memories that you sitting back and never forget about. And, and watching musicians like yourself, like you said, that you and Shutter Think, you, the, you two are like probably some of my top favorite bands because of that reason that you came out of the area and that you came out of. And were so different than anyone else, and had your own different sounds, and you did it from with you know like people from different walks of life and different backgrounds in music, and and you guys were able as artists to create this thing that kind of, I mean, as you saw at the fest, I mean, you guys have created this multi generational uh, fan base now. You know, it's not just yeah. 40 year olds that are into you guys anymore it's you guys have 20 year old kids that are listening to you now and that was always my dream from the time the first time I heard you I'm like this because I always thought you all were way ahead of yourselves you guys were I always thought you were way ahead of your time like for some reason it was just like you it was something you were just nobody could get you the way they should have you know you guys were one of those bands that were great and when I saw you play at the fest, I was super stoked and doing the stuff that you did musically as you grew, what was the, um, what was the, uh, what made you want to keep going? Like what made you want to keep playing the music that you guys were playing? at? You know, like, cause it seems like though you started putting out songs and you were doing great covers and you guys started just putting out tons of music. Like, where did you have time, even at that time? Like, I'm just kind of amazed that you guys had put out so much stuff in such a short period
1: of time. Well, I think that. Um, so that's a big question. There's a, there's a lot lot to unpack in there. Um, first, I think that we had artists. You know, you know this as a, somebody who plays and, and writes songs yourself. You've got a compulsion to create, right? And either you've got an outlet for that creation or you don't. And there's a lot of people who have very valuable things to say just for whatever reason, because of geography, because of of finances, because of physical limitations, can't connect up with another group of people who can give voice to that vision. Right. Mm -hmm. Great songwriter who is just stuck in, in her basement writing songs by herself because she just doesn't know any drummers or she lives in the middle of nowhere in, in Iowa. Right. Like, Lots of people just have to have to create because it's all they know how to do. So the four of us had that going for us. Then we also happened to be in the right place at the right time. Like we were in DC in a, in a music scene that was interested in hearing voices that were not the traditional stuff that you would hear on the radio. Right. Um, so we had a supportive environment to work in,
2: right?
1: Um, which which just encourages you. You know, like it's, it's really hard to be to be the only person playing hardcore underground music in, in, I don't know, uh, Tulsa, right? Right. Like, the Tulsa scene may have become great at some point, but at that time, if we were located in Tulsa, probably never would have gotten heard. Right. It was very discouraging to be in a band. You're pouring everything you've got into your songs and you go to, go to play a show at the local, whatever, coffee house and four people show up. It's like, God, I can't even draw more than four people at my own hometown. What, what how am I ever gonna take my music to a larger audience?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, third thing was having Discord around was huge, a mm. huge asset, right? So we had not only a label that supported us, but effectively a family of bands that were all really looking out for one another. Cool. Right? Like we were we were playing shows together, we were touring together, we were supporting one another, we were doing shout outs for one another's records. Um, and it's it's almost impossible to undervalue, or to, to overstate the importance of having a community of musicians to work in to help kind of keep you going. You know, sure in, in sometimes in sometimes positively competitive ways, right? Right. Like we you know, shutter, we and we and shutter had a bit of a friendly rivalry right. around <laughs> um, around music, and yeah. shutter was shutter was doing amazing innovative things with underground music at the time and we yeah. were just like we don't want to sound like Shutter but we definitely want to be pushing the envelope the way that, that Craig yeah. does in his songwriting and the way the rest of the band did you know so, yeah. so that like that helped provide some, some juice to it um, and the last thing was just by virtue of how the economy worked around here at the time yeah. um, most bands lived in group houses okay. and we all lived together and when, if you guys get along and you live together, you find a lot of time to rehearse. You find a lot of time to just sit down and, 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 and workshop new tunes and new ideas.
2: Right.
1: And, you know, it's really easy, especially when you, when you get a little money and you invest in a four tracker. We had a, we had a cassette eight track that we, that we oh, had man. for a little while. To, to just record rehearsals and stuff like that. You could just, Jay and I could just go down to the basement and say, Hey, I just had this idea. Listen to this. Blah, blah, blah. And then I play something and he'll like, Oh, that's really cool. I'll do this on top of it.
2: Right.
1: And it just facilitates the songwriting process by, by virtue of the fact that you're kind of in one another's space all the time. It can become confining totally. You know, it's, it's sometimes you just want to get away and, and lock yourself into a room and be by yourself for a while. And that's kind of tough to do when you live in a group house but right. um, so a lot of the DC bands lived in you know Ulysses lived in a house together um, Wow, S- S- Stu from Shudder Think actually lived with us um, Shudder didn't live together but um, a lot of the bands ended up because they wanted a rehearsal space so yeah. you'd find a house to rent that had a basement that was more or less soundproof or soundproofable
2: right.
1: and um, and it, it became like your little compound you know
0: yeah that's cool There's so I got asked ask a dumb question. So did the cops screw with you all a lot about having, getting group housing and like practicing all the time?
1: No, you know, it really, well, uh, speaking especially for us, we never had an issue. We were, we, we lucked out by having a house across the street from a high school. Oh, wow. Um, right. So, and, and next door to like a little kind of parklandish type thing. Right. So we basically only had one neighbor, and nice. their house was on the opposite side of the lot, and ours was on the opposite side of the lot from them. So there was more space between us. Ah. Um, so we were we were pretty low, and and, and the rehearsal space was underground. So nice. it was fairly decently soundproofed. Like let's face it, like bass and drums just carry. Right. So oh, yeah. I, if 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 I if I you know happen to be coming in from the outside, and and Kim and, and Adam with Kim and Zach were were having a go in the basement. I could totally hear it, but we didn't really have neighbors who cared all that much or didn't seem to mind or they didn't say anything as much as they did. Yeah. In D.C. itself, it was a little bit more problematic. Like, you lose know, these guys look down in Mount Pleasant in row houses. And right. In a row house, you're literally sharing a wall with your neighbors. Right. Um, but <laughs> for the most part, especially if you lived in the less nice neighborhoods, which were what any of us could afford at the time anyway, yeah. um, People tended to be pretty tolerant of of the noise as long as you're respectful, you Right, know.
0: Right.
1: That's like good. don't don't rehearse at 3 a.m.
0: Right, right. Don't be that guy. <laughs> so as yeah. as Jawbox grew and you all kind of hit that, it seemed a, uh, a a kind of like you were it looked like you were about to explode onto almost the mainstream of music in a way. Probably I don't think maybe you were even thinking that that would ever happen. Um, I don't know, maybe, you know, like sometimes you could be, you know, like, yes, our band's good enough. I could, you know, I could see us, maybe we'd get lucky and this would happen. But did you see yours? Did you ever see Jawbox getting to that, that uh, height that it did?
1: No, never in our wildest dreams. Um, Again, like being in the right place at the right time is 98% of it for us. And, I, I really think the only reason we ever ended up on a major label was because um, Mike Gitter, who was our A&R guy at Atlantic, um, came from the Boston hardcore scene. So he nice. was he was a <laughs> legit fan of the music.
2: Yeah,
1: and he got great. a job working working at Atlantic to try to yeah you know to, to basically get that, get get Atlantic's roster up to speed with what um, DGC and Geffen were already doing with Nirvana. What the
0: kids um, are listening to. And, you know? <laughs> What'd you say? I said, what the kids are listening to, damn it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, And we knew that. We we weren't like, oh, shucks, geez, you really love us? And and he did love us, but we knew that the machine wouldn't necessarily love us. The machine just wanted us to write a Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, yeah. The machine cared about making money off of us. But meanwhile, we saw it as an opportunity to reach a a larger audience, um, which which sounds like code for we want to make a lot of money, but it wasn't really, we never, we never imagined ourselves as rock stars. Like it was not, not even in the Kurt Cobain, uh, I'm a, I'm a total train wreck as a person. And I'm just going to smash my instruments kind of way. Um, that just wasn't our, our vocabulary at all. It was like, we, we think the music that we are making is important and we want people to hear it. Um, and we, we recognized that one way to do that would be to start working with a labor label that had broader distribution broader appeal broader marketing cloud
2: right.
1: um, and discord mm-hmm. um, which sounds like it um, um, sounds like a slam on discord but no, no, I don't think it is I think no. that I think that discord did tremendous things for us and continues to do tremendous things for its artists um, but we were we were in a position where it's like you know, it'd be really, really nice given the kinds of songs that we're writing now to not try to jam a record in over three days right. in a right. You know, it would be nice to have a budget that let us try to explore the, the potential of the songs that we're writing now in a way that gives us a little bit more breathing room. Yeah, yeah. And frankly, it would be nice to not have to worry about where our next meal was coming from.
2: Right.
1: Um, and, and I think that a lot of people equate major label was selling out because it feels like, oh, you know, now, now you're going to be a millionaire and you're going to ride around the Rolls Royce and, and um, you know, smoke blunts rolled out $100 bills. That's not the way it is at all. Like, oh, I, no. I, I, <laughs> I I make no bones about telling people what my tax return said the year after we signed to a major label. I had $19,000 claimed on income taxes, right? Wow. Like, that's what I was making as a quote-unquote special musician. Yeah, right. But the fact is, like, we could afford to do it without gay jobs at that point. Right, Um, and it was not—it was not that there was a ton of money, but there was enough money that we could not have day jobs that distracted us from doing what we really wanted to do, which was pouring our lives into writing, recording, and touring, touring um, on on the songs that we're writing. Which
0: is—it's an amazing dream to have lived, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean, I never—I never. I have zero regrets about the decisions that we made. Yeah, um, I think that I think that I'm not to sound like I'm patting us on the back too much, but I think we handled the whole thing with a great degree degree of integrity. Oh, it was fun. Um, yeah. We didn't change our sound. We didn't try to become popular. We didn't. Right. I don't think we started acting like a bunch of jerks. Right. Um, you know, we didn't think we were better than anybody else. We just thought we were lucky lucky enough yeah. to have. Um, somebody be willing to make a, a financial investment in yeah. the music
0: that we wanted to make. Well, see, that's the thing we have to change. That whole thing about I think selling out is a word that the top of the machine made up so the lower people seem like they're selling out when actually they're just surviving on something that they love to do, and that's what all human beings. You know, everybody would love to find their dream job, whether you're making it doesn't matter how much you're making. Like you said, you were happy because you were doing what you wanted to do. So I don't think. that. Yeah. And I think I think that's so far. Yeah, from and, selling out. You 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 got you were lucky enough to get paid to what you love to do. I mean, that's like what all humans want to do is find that job, <laughs> you know, like.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You want to make a living doing, pursuing, pursuing the thing that makes you happy. It feels, makes you feel fulfilled. Yeah. And we just have, we have an economic structure in our country, which makes you a function of capitalism to do that Yeah. in ways that other countries, I I believe it's still this way in Sweden, but you get arts grants from the government as a
2: musician in Sweden. Yep.
1: And we ostensibly have the National Endowment for the Arts, which should be funding things like rock bands. But rock bands are seen as commercial entities in ways that a ballet troupe or a visual, pa- you know, a, a painter or right. a visual artist is not. Which is and huge. so, yeah. to get an NEA grant to run your band would have been awesome. Like I would have loved it if, if we had gotten. You know, hundred thousand dollars from the NEA to make a record instead yeah. of hundred thousand dollars from a land record, a land records to make uh, a record. Yeah. but that's not the way. That's not the way this country operates. Yeah, you know,
0: there's there's red tape to. That's the funny thing. I mean, they don't even teach art in school anymore, to kids.
1: Like, no it's, it's 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 purely an expression of our cultural values like, the way the system is currently really, set up it's, it's like, sad I, if you are if you are legitimized by commercial viability yeah and that's really unfortunate because so much of the dust art is not commercially viable
0: at all. yeah you're abs- yeah you're absolutely right and it's like it's one of those things that it seems like it's uh it's not a i mean i think we all could have seen it coming <laughs> you know with the way that some people just are They don't think about they they don't they don't think past their blinders I guess you would say in a way or enough to uh, to realize that there's others on the planet that have to deal with the stuff as well so uh, but uh, going from Jawbox and you becoming that band and becoming that point that you came to and then the finish of Jawbox and then you were also started in another band. That I have seen before, and that band is called Burning Airlines. Yep, great band. Thank A- you. Amazing band. Um, I saw you all at in Cambridge at the the club that's downstairs from the restaurant. Oh, what's that? Uh, Middle East Cafe? Yeah. Yes, I saw you at that show in like two thousand ish maybe 99 like in yeah yeah i think it was like around that time period and uh yeah if i was on
1: stage it would have been 99. yeah yeah
0: Yeah, that sounds about right and uh great show (laughs) uh never got to tell you but uh yes another amazing band that seemed to follow after a band that you were in that had a um a big following and had uh its own sound into another band that seemed to kind of turn into kind of almost the same thing where it had its own sound in it and it had a pretty big, quick following itself.
1: Yeah. We were, um, we were fortunate in, in Burning airlines to have both, I mean, a tremendous drummer and Pete Moffat, um, as well as Jay's incredible songwriting skills, um, coupled with the fact that because we, Jawbox was relatively recently in demise. Still, there was an interest in the stuff that we were doing, so we didn't really have to start from scratch, which was which was kind of nice. A um, very different band, you know. Like, bring yeah. Burning Airlines. Definitely, I think if you're if you're a follower of Jay Robbins and you and you look at the arc of his career over the past thirty years, you see you see the thread, and it yeah. makes sense. Um, but at the time, I think there were. There were some people who might have been expecting something different out of Burning Airlines, um, and I, I hope many of them were pleasantly surprised by what what we did, slowing down to a three-piece. Yeah, and they eventually went back to becoming a four-piece after after I left. But um, I liked I liked being in a power trio again. I liked playing bass again too. It was a lot of fun to go back to bass after years of playing guitar and box.
0: <laughs> right. No, I'm, the only bands I've only played. Well, I played in one band, but the. The, the band that I really liked playing with was with two friends of mine and we did two different versions and we were always a three-piece and that was always my favorite. I've always been a three-piece kind of guy. Like, I, I'm not a... I still pretend to play bass and I still love to, but, like, if I ever get the chance again, it would definitely be a three-piece band. Like, for some reason to me, that's, yeah. like, my favorite thing. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what it is. I think... I think I have I, I grew, I'm I 48 so I have a I'm at that age where it's like I grew up listening to power rock trios like ZZ Top you know I grew up in Florida so it's like I listen to a lot of like rock, pop rock and southern rock down here so there's a lot of that like yeah, yeah, those crazy like rock and roll bands that were three piece I mean ACDC of course like Jailbreak is one of my favorite albums like that's like I mean, but those—that's the weird thing about Florida—is that I'm not original. I'm originally from New Hampshire. I just moved down here against my will at a very young age, so I was raised right. in Florida, and so it's like I have that weird mix of like I'm definitely was the weirdo because a lot of the kids I grew up around were in like F, like 4-H club and FFA kids, and they wore cowboy boots and. Stuff like that, so I was the weird, you know, like one of the weirdo kids in Sarasota back in the day, and it's like, right. Music saved my life, you know. So it's like, uh, music has always been the uh, the impetus for me to help me move on and make better decisions in my life. It seems, and uh, your bands, uh, Jawbox and Burning Airlines, are two of those bands that I say that again are really up there as some of those bands that were just like, yeah, it's, I always tell people about it. If you've, if like, I remember I told some kids about y'all a couple years back and I was like, one day they're going to play the fest. I just had this feeling you guys were going to play it. I was like, they're going to play the fest. And when you see them live, you know what I mean? And, and after, swear to goodness, they were like, you're absolutely right. That's, one of those bands like you just you're right They're you guys are timeless you guys were jamming out shows i was seeing there a lot you guys had been playing a lot there for a bit before all this um weirdness had started with the this coronavirus thing that we got going on here so uh yeah so um i was i was gonna say like i'm sure that was kind of like another surprise thing that like this momentum seemed to start picking up for you guys again after so many years off.
1: Um I'm sorry, I just got I got a time check from uh my wife. I got oh, that's, a, good. Um, that's fine. got to anyway. wrap it up. Um any, any parting question? Parting no, no, words I think, I think that's I good.
0: I, I think we're good to go. I just thank you again, seriously, for your time. I know you have to go. I appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything that you would like to say? Any websites or anything you would like for anybody to check out? Anything that you've got going on right now?
1: Um, yeah, well, I, I, I did just release an EP from my newest band, Fox All Stacks. Yeah. Um, which is me and Jim Spelman from Velocity Girl, Pete Moffat on drums, and Brian Baker yes. uh, on bass. Thank
2: you. I so we released our, <laughs>
1: our LP back in September. Yeah. And then um, to, to celebrate quarantine, we, we put out a four-song EP just a couple of weeks ago. Nice. And it is a partial benefit, 50% or more, of proceeds from the sale of the EP on Bandcamp are going to we are family dc which is an organization run by um mark anderson who okay. used to run positive force dc yeah um and they support um they support uh seniors who are living in um inner city dc so these are impoverished seniors who have yeah. a real hard time getting out to get their own groceries uh wow. even, even more so now in these times yes and we are family dc is doing a lot of work to help support the uh, elders of the community
2: awesome.
1: so i encourage everybody to um Check us out at foxallstacks.bandcamp.com. Yes. Check out the new EP. And um, meanwhile, all the Jawbox shows that we had planned for this spring slash summer have been pushed.
2: Yes.
1: Um, Hopefully, we're going to make it down to Atlanta sometime in the fall.
2: Nice.
1: Um, And um, uh, we were planning on going to Europe in June, but that's been pushed out to 2021 at this point. Oh, wow. We'll be out there eventually, yeah. um, playing, playing some gigs, and hopefully yep. seeing some
0: folks. And positive vibes out there to the universe and uh, everybody. Be smart and let's let's get rid of this weird little thing. <laughs> right on. You know. And Bill, again, thank you so much for your artistry, your art, uh, the time and effort that you've put in in your life into what you do to have an effect that you do on the people that listen to you. And I appreciate you and your time. And the best to you and your family. Thank you again. Thanks so much. Likewise to you as well. Take care, man. Peace. All right. Take care. All right. See ya. That was it. Bill Barbo. What you know. What what. All right, y'all. Peace.